So kinfolk, hey, how are you today? Listen, we are coming up on the first year anniversary of the murder of our brother, George Floyd. And I wanted to set aside some time to tell you a story that I probably haven't told many people. And I'm going to tell this story largely to kind of make the point or the goal of this is uh, to kind of talk about where I think we go from here a year later after our brother George Floyd was murdered. And so, listen, man, I haven't told this story in full. Only people who probably know this story in full is my wife and some of my trusted friends. And so about the time that uh, this happened a year ago, I got a call from the Deputy Secretary of State of uh, the United States of America. And it was a call to wish me well and to wish our congregation well and to wish the city well um, in light of what had happened to George Floyd. Now, I don't, I don't know these people. I don't even know how they got my phone number, <laughs> but uh, they called. And then, you know, later on, this person says, hey, I want you to talk to somebody else at the White House, do you mind if I give them your number? And I said, no. And I couldn't quite make out who he was talking about. But I think probably the the next day I get a call from Dr. Ben Carson, who at the time was the HUD secretary. And he wishes me well. And he asked me a question while we were on the phone. He says, um, I'd like for you to talk to somebody. Do you mind if I give them your information? And I think they already had my information. And the person he wanted me to talk to was the president of the United States. And at the time, I wasn't sure whether or not I should or should what I should or shouldn't do. And so I sat down with a lot of my advisors, uh, sat down with about 12 people at the time. And we had a conversation about this. And we decided that I should engage the president. Um, but not, not engage him so that he would come out to uh, that. I'd have to go to Washington or anything like that because I wasn't really for uh, the politics. I really was wanting to see if we could make a difference. so We can um, say something that would be helpful uh, to the president of the United States. So it was decided that, hey, man, go ahead. Take the call if you get it. So. I don't know if it's the next day, and hopefully I'm telling the story in order. I get a call, and uh, I answer the phone. It's the chief of staff to the president, the person who is the second most powerful person in the White House next to the president. And it's Mark Meadows, and he's talking to me about, uh, he's asking me questions about what do I think we ought to do in light of what happened to George Floyd. And so I'm sitting there and, and I'm listening to his question. And he, he says, because whatever that thing is, I, you know, I, I want to know what, what, what you think we ought to do. And so then I, I give him a spiel, some of it you're going to hear in a second. And he says, man, listen, I want you to talk to the president. 
So at the time, I'm like, okay, I've had three or four different conversations. And then I guess at this point, they want me to talk to the president. So I'm waiting for the president to call. No, I send him um, what I think we ought to, uh, what what I'm going to say to the president, I believe, um, in an email. He he says, okay, the president is going to get with you. I never get a call from the president. I'm not sure what happened, why I didn't get the call from the president. But all I know is I said, man, I have the, the email to the chief of staff of the United States of America. I know that I can still get my message to the president. Um, and so I put together this thing, this letter, if you will, to the president of the United States. And in that letter, I'm going to read it for those of you who probably haven't heard it before. This is what I say. I say, dear Mr. President, it's the middle of the year of our Lord 2020. See, I see a young black girl. She's six years old. She's moving with her mother from the only home she knew in the middle of Houston's third ward. The uncertainty, uncertainty she faces is because her father has left this mortal coil and she doesn't have his arms to protect her anymore. The girl's father was pulled out of his vehicle, laid face down, and his neck was pressed between the concrete and a policeman's knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The life left him, and he laid there motionless till his undertakers took him to the morgue. He won't work anymore because he's not alive. I see a black man. He is 27 years old. He's sitting hands over his head, reliving the trauma of having a shootout with the police in his own home. With the woman of his dreams by his side. He remembers looking at her lifeless form after eight bullets traveled through her body. The woman was an emergency technician and and saved life after life, but hers was taken away. The woman he built a life with will not wake up until the resurrection. She was cut down too early by the execution of a no-knock warrant by the police. He can no longer live in his home. The ghosts are too loud. The man and the girl, separated by 951 miles from Louisville to Houston, are both wondering why does misery constantly haunt the black body? Had their forefathers done something to hurt America? Had these same forebears not built into America the greatest living economy the world has seen by the strength of their calloused hands? Had they not done their duty as soldiers to this nation? Did they refuse to defend their land against a foreign enemy? Were their loved ones not precious in the sight of God and therefore precious in the sight of their respective police departments? The misery of police brutality when people in authority choose to use force that is in excess of what is needed to keep the peace has whipped black bodies since chattel slavery, Jim Crow. The Rodney King 90s, and even now during the hashtag millennium, America has yet to live up to the ideals that it is sold to the free and developing world. The end result is that people do not believe that they can wait another moment for racial justice, particularly when it comes to the use of excessive force against black bodies. My people and those that love us are in despair and they are disconsolate. They lament, but they cannot wait. Either we are going to master this sin of racism or this sin of racism is going to master us. 
Look, I too played a role in the fiasco. Day after day, I would watch people on the screen get beaten and brutalized. I would say things. But a week later, I would forget about it and carry on with my normal day. I didn't see that an injustice anywhere as an injustice everywhere. It wasn't until the tidings hit my own porch about someone I knew from the community I love that my eyes were open. I began to see that I had to keep on knocking on the door of those who sworn to faithfully defend this country from its enemies, both foreign and domestic, and ask them to deposit what is owed to everyone who is created in the image of God, dignity from law enforcement officials. You, Mr. President, had a role to play in this as well. You had an opportunity to de-escalate the situation in Lafayette Square and elsewhere with empathy. A soft answer turns away wrath. Instead, your strong words and actions expose the tension between the state and people of color on the issue of police brutality. I was disappointed, Mr. President, but I've not given up on you. No man is beyond the arms of God's redemption. We are not beyond redemption. He can restore us. You still have a role to play. I've heard it reported that you are the most powerful man in the world. And I'd like to remind you, of the wonderful story of the most powerful person in the universe who left the palatial gold-covered mansions of heaven and came down to the project we call Earth to see about his people living in spiritual poverty and squalor. He took on flesh and lived among us, and even though he had the power, he gave it up to be murdered on behalf of people like you and I who were living in spiritual poverty in a world that lacks love. He redefined what it meant to be strong. Instead of using power forcefully, he displayed power by submitting to a life of service and sacrifice. Strength is Jesus, who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor, so that those of us who are poor could become rich. He did this for you. Mr. President, in following the Lord Jesus, you have the same opportunity to step out of the White House and into black spaces and empty out your resources to make a difference in America. And here are five tangible things that you can do to achieve this. One, as the most powerful person in the world, you can show strength by sacrificing for the betterment of your country by striking a new tone, one of empathy towards those of us in the African diaspora who are grieved by what so oftentimes appears to be state-sponsored brutality against us. Two, you have an opportunity to act and advocate for the amending or elimination of qualified immunity, along with other such laws and ordinances that ensure that police are, are not protected for poor judgment, use of excessive force, and actions that jeopardize the lives of those they serve. Three, you can champion the idea that the local law enforcement should explore creating and funding innovative Multi-sector partnerships whereby police have the ability to call on social services, behavioral health, and other providers as the situation calls for. For instance, in the time the Atlanta Police Department took to assess Rayshard Brooks, a social worker, a drug and alcohol addiction counselor, and an Uber could have been on site and all violence may have been avoided. Four, you have best practice models already available where states like Florida, have created small, manageable, independent taxing districts that have developed policies and directed funding to local charities, community-based organizations, and public health departments to deploy 
evidence-based programs and services that are proven to promote the physical, mental, and emotional health and social economic well-being of traditionally underfunded and under-accessed communities like the CUNY homes in the Third Ward. Please look at states that do this and ask Congress to explore ways to scale this to a national level. Five, finally, you should call for a prohibition on spending by local police unions on local elections. The idea that a local mayor, council member, assembly judge, assemblyman judge, or even sheriff will have their opposition funded unless they do exactly as the police union wants is institutional blackmail. State and local politicians and judges should no longer fear for their jobs should they cross a powerful police union. Would you do them? Please? I got other things that I would like to talk to you about regarding housing discrimination, the educational system, and other things that affect the neighborhood, but maybe I will write again. For now, on behalf of the people in Houston's Third Ward, I extend an invitation to you to come out and hear from them personally about what's happening in the CUNY homes, place that George Floyd called home. Would you come? Sincerely, Patrick P. T. Nguolo, Pastor Resurrection Houston Church. So that was the letter I wrote to Trump on Juneteenth. Sent it to him on Juneteenth, Juneteenth of 2020. And as we're almost a year uh, from that point, I look back at the things that I'd asked the president, the former president at the time to do. And as I look at those things, I still think those are things that are most needed in order for us to be able to move forward uh, as a more perfect union. I find it interesting that uh, the first thing, empathy and a conversation, are buzzwords and rhetoric words that are being used today about the issues of institutional racism that we should listen into. We should uh, we should listen and have conversations filled with empathy. But I still don't think we've we've had the national conversation. And then the second thing about qualified immunity, the George Floyd Policing Act is still on Congress floor. One of the things that I've, I've re, I, I noticed, and shout out to my Asian brothers and sisters, an Asian Hate Act bill was signed, um, was on the House floor, was signed, ratified by the Senate, and on the president's desk. All this happened while the George Floyd Policing Act has been sitting around for almost a year and still has not been signed. And so to me, that distresses me because I think we're still back at the actual issue that is at hand. Do we see, when we look into the eyes of a man like George Floyd, Do we see God? And some of you say, what do you mean? Do you see God? Well, if all of us were created in the image of God, it means that when I look into your eyes, I should see God. And do we see God in black and brown bodies? And if we did, we we would 
we would have passed that George Floyd uh, policing act. The third thing that, uh, you know, I, I've started to see some police departments institute uh, where they're beginning to think holistically about what it means to answer a call for service that some people don't need uh, jail. They need mental health. They need social workers. They need addiction counseling. And you see some police departments doing it. I haven't seen it in, in my own city, but I've seen it happening in other places. And I hope that that continues. The fourth thing that, uh, you know, this is a little more technical, uh, but I mean, I haven't seen that move, this movement of, uh, of taxing districts or monies that's being set aside to provide holistic help um, from the government to communities like uh, Third Ward. And then five, prohibition on spending by local police unions. Police unions are powerful. I, I haven't seen a mass movement to change that in the last year. And let's not talk about housing discrimination, the educational system, and some of those other things. So when I look at the list of things that I would mentioned a year ago for the president to do, the former president to do, and then the current president has has had an opportunity to do, I haven't seen even those things happen. And I thought those were five tangible things that could have been done. And what am I trying to say here? I, I really think that as a country, as a people, um, we've got to move past the rhetoric to actually doing the work of repentance that is necessary in order for us to actually form a more perfected union. Without that, I don't know if we, we will achieve what it is that we think we've set out to achieve. And because of this, I, 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 I honestly have felt when reporters or people ask me, is there any hope? There has been times where I've wanted to say there's hope, but I haven't felt hopeful. And so for my own personal journey, I've had to go and figure out what it means for me to have hope that this situation could be better, that I'm bringing children into a world that I don't think have hope. And so one of the things that has brought me hope, and I think may bring you hope, is I think the Christ story, a.k.a. the gospel, provides answers. A Palestinian Jew is slaughtered at the hands of a government that enacted state-sponsored terror and humiliation by crucifixion. This Palestinian Jew's name is Jesus Christ. However, God, when he sees this death sentence, he says, no, that's my son. And for the first time in human history, he reverses a death sentence and raises him from the dead. We call that resurrection. We call that justice. And And this resurrection has brought me so much joy and brought me so much hope because it means that Brother Floyd, we hope, will be raised 
and, and in him being raised, he will receive justice. And those of us who are still here, we continue the recreation process that God started when he raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection gives us hope that one day in America, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness will roll down like a mighty stream. And it provides the motivation for us to keep pressing on, even if we lose our lives. The resurrection has profound implications because it means that it means that you can experience a death, a death, and still come back from it. It, it means that nothing less than a death can precede a resurrection. So that even if you know, even if you fail and and don't succeed, it still isn't enough for God not to be able to do something about it, that, that, that God can raise people who die and make them alive. And so I think the resurrection has application in this instance and, and in many other instances in our lives. And it's the one thing that has given me hope that we can make a just world out of this world. And when I say we, I mean we under the leadership and the authority and the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's precisely what the scriptures have called us to see. That Jesus, living, ruling in heaven, man, he's literally not only working things out, but he's in the control room of heaven creating a new and better world. And we have proof of that because he's the firstborn of the new creation. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is we can see if if we can see that Jesus and we can believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We know that because of that, God is working to recreate, redeem, restore broken systems broken families, uh, and injustice that we see so that when he comes back and rules, we're going to see what it looks like to live under just government in a just society. And we got proof of that because of the resurrection. And so, man, that's my hope, man. I, I don't have hope in princes and potentates. I ultimately am not sure whether this country is going to do the work that is necessary for it to live up to the creed uh, that all men are created equal. I don't, I don't know if it will, but I don't have to believe that it will in order to have hope because I know that Jesus cares enough about black bodies and brown bodies and for that matter, white bodies, to create a world uh, through his, uh, God is creating the world through his son, Jesus Christ, through the idea and the reality of the resurrection, we will see true justice on the planet. And when, when I say justice, another way to say this is shalom, that, that the circle may be broken, Justice puts the circle back together, and that circle is shalom. We will see peace 
among men. I got many other things I want to say about this, but I think I'm going to close here. I want to offer a word of prayer for our country. I want to offer a word of prayer for you and your family who are listening. And so let me do that. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, you are good. Uh, We're bad. (laughs) Uh, Irretrievably bad. But you found a way to take out dead souls and make them alive. You did this through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, would you awaken us? Would you awaken us with a sense of joy, a sense of love, a sense of purpose? Would you give us the strength to love even the unlovable? Will you help us, Lord, to get over pain, trauma, um, unforgiveness, bitterness, apathy, hard-heartedness? Lord, soften our hearts. Help us to repent from this original sin of systemic racism that exists here and all over the Western world. We just pray, God, that you would break that that demon, that principality, whatever it may be that is stopping us from fully enjoying uh, the treasure that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be salt and light. And I pray, God, that we would, um, wherever it gets dark, we would remember the Christ story, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you uh, lived, that you died, that you were buried, that you rose again, that you ascended into heaven, and that you will return, and that you will rule and reign in justice and in righteousness. Lord, may we place our hope in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.